God, which is a good thing. Let there be thanksgiving, right? Those who do not acknowledge God as God, those who reject the truth of God, suppress the truth of God in their own unrighteousness, they do not give thanks. So this Pharisee is giving thanks, but it's not a healthy thanking of God, is it? He says, essentially, thank you, God, for making me like this. He says, thank you, God, for putting your power and creativity on display when you made me. Thank you for making me the way that I am. How great you are for bringing me into this world. Not that I want to disparage anyone, but the Football Hall of Fame induction was a few weeks ago. And I, I found a lot of the, the rhetoric around those ceremonies to be somewhat like this. There's sort of this confluence of this respect for God, but then also this, this exaltation of, uh, of the ego, of the I. And look what I have accomplished and what I have achieved. One of the quotes that I heard from those speeches, which a lot of them had good things in them, but uh, this is one of the quotes. I am living proof of the impossible. There was a lot of the, I thank God that he made me like this. We think about what the Pharisee said and how he attributes credit to God, but where is his reliance? What, what is he leaning on as he, give thanks, as he gives thanks to God? He's leaning on his works. He's, he's leaning on his deeds. He thanks God for producing in him a righteousness. Calvin says that this is such a fascinating passage because it forces you to distrust works completely. It's wrong even if you, you look to God and you say, God, I thank you that you are the one who has produced this righteousness in me. It forces you to throw all of that away, whether you claim credit for yourself or give the credit to someone or something else. This Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. He's saying I go above and beyond the requirements of the law. The Old Testament only would have required fasting once a year. He fasts twice a week. He gives tithes on everything, not just some things. He would have been commanded to tithe on some things, but not on everything. This Pharisee is exactly the kind of man who would be justified before God in the mind of most. One Reformed pastor pointed out that uh, this is sort of like a long refrain of a self-righteousness hymn you might entitle, Great is my faithfulness. Great is my faithfulness. The tax collector, of course, is on the other end of the religious spectrum of society. Hated, a traitor to his own people, an extortioner, a cheat, probably made wealthy through dishonesty and betrayal. But what does the tax collector do? He owns his sin. He looks into himself he does not hide anything from God, and he assesses himself correctly. As I mentioned earlier, J.C. Ryle said this, true cure, the true cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. Do you know yourself? Do you know for a fact that you are sinful before God? He says, once let the eyes of our understanding be opened by the Spirit, and we shall talk no more of our own goodness. He says, one glimpse, empowered by the Holy Spirit into ourselves, will prompt us to speak never again of our own goodness. Once let us see, he says, what there is in our own hearts and what the holy law of God requires and self-conceit will die. We shall lay our hand on our mouths and cry with the leper, unclean, unclean. James chapter 3. We all stumble in many ways. Ecclesiastes 7. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Job 15, what is man 
that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman, that he can be righteous. English journalist Malcolm Muggeridge said that there is nothing more empirically verifiable than the depravity of man. In other words, look throughout human history. Nothing can be proven more easily than the depravity of man. And then he said, but at the same time, nothing is more intellectually resisted. You can say to, to people that you are a person who believes in the sinfulness of man, and they might respond by saying, oh, you're one of those. Put you in a category, oh, you're one of those that believes in human sinfulness. I know exactly, I know exactly the kind of person you are. We may suppress that truth. We may intellectually resist the depravity of man, but the truth remains just the same. But perhaps you say, well, okay, but the, the tax collector, a religious man, and was seeking to to obey God and the law of God, the tax collector could have been doing any number of things that would have been reprehensible. And perhaps that is true. Think of the the reading of the law we had this morning in Ephesians 5. We are to to put off the works of darkness, right? And certainly that is true. And the Bible doesn't do away with those distinctions. It's It's a very unhealthy thing to say that all sin is exactly the same. Not all sin is exactly the same. But the point of this passage is is this, and here again the words of Calvin. He says, whatever proficiency any man may have made in the worship of God and in true holiness. In other words, maybe someone is great. Maybe someone is exemplary in worshiping God and, and seeking holiness and righteousness in this life. He goes on to say, yet if he consider how far he is still deficient, there is no other form of prayer which he can properly use than to begin with the acknowledgement of guilt. For though some are more, that is, guilty, for though some are more guilty and others less guilty, yet all are universally guilty. Uh, How's the beginning of the the gratitude section of the catechism? How does that begin for us? What do we make in this life in our obedience to Christ? A small beginning. We make just a small beginning of obedience unto God. And so Calvin says that uh, Jesus lays down a rule for us in prayer, that God will not be pacified towards us unless we distrust works and pray that we may be freely reconciled. So ask yourself this morning, brothers and sisters, is that the manner in which you pray? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Do you understand that you come with empty hands, trusting in the goodness of God? Have you distrusted works? Have you thrown it away? And understand and understood that you have been freely reconciled. Our faith needs no other support than this. That God has accepted us not because we deserved it. But because he does not impute our sins. The tax collector is looking into the mercy of God that's that's found. I mean Jesus is telling this before the cross, before the resurrection. Look at the wonderful covenant mercy and grace of God. Found even in the old covenants. Think of the, the words we sang last week. Psalm 103, he does not punish our misdeeds or give our sins their just reward. How great his love as high as heaven towards all those who fear the Lord. The Lord is merciful and the Lord is gracious. That is the posture of prayer. Ask yourself, is that how you're coming before the Lord? Or do your prayers sound a little bit more like this Pharisee? Secondly, we consider the poison of performance. This gospel truth seems so fundamental, it seems so clear, so central to what Luke and to what all scripture has to say, but what is so amazing is how easy it is for the the, the human heart 
to produce something that will veer off track from the gospel. The same human heart that produces endless amounts of sin can so easily veer back and begin to trust its own works when it thinks about its place before God. You look at any other faith system in the world, and that's basically what it comes down to. Think of the example we began with today. Uh, Those young boys, those Buddhist boys who were saved. This amazing picture of grace, someone laying down their life for them. They're saved, and what is their first thought? How do I pay back the debt that I owe? How do I achieve some kind of merit on my own? Think of the explicit teaching of Islam. Their exact terms are on the day of resurrection. All of your deeds will need to be placed on a scale and your good deeds must outweigh your bad deeds. Think of a polytheistic faith like Hinduism. Uh, Buddhism is actually a non-theistic faith trying to achieve this nirvanic state. Polytheistic faith like Hinduism with hundreds of thousands or even I think perhaps millions of gods. But they also have this karmic cycle Ravi Zacharias tells the story of meeting a Hindu man who who says, I came to this terrible realization that I thought the worst person in my life was my loan manager, a person I have to cut a check to each and every month. But then I realized that my karmic cycle is way worse than my loan manager because I don't know how much more I owe and I don't know when I'm going to pay it off. I hate to think that, he says, that my religion is worse than my loan manager. Jesus says it's not about paying it off. We must trust the grace of God. So easily the human heart veers off the course of grace. You see it obviously even in the church. You mentioned Martin Luther at the beginning. If you save me, O God, I will pay off my debt to you. I'll give myself to you. Then Luther began to read the scriptures, began to notice something about the corruption of the church, a few things that had seeped into the church in the Middle Ages causing need for reformation. The first was the, the, the teaching of purgatory, which basically said if you do not merit righteousness on earth, then you go to a place where your sins are purged, pur- purge purgatory. Go to a place where those sins are purged and wiped away so that you can finally be uh, welcomed into eternal bliss. In addition to that, the, the church began to teach that Mary and the saints had done so much good that they had locked up for themselves in heaven a treasury of merit. It was called supererogation. And that is actually the exact same thing that we find in the Pharisee today. This is what supererogation is. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe on all that I get. I go above and beyond the requirements of the law. And that made way for this third corrupt teaching, which was, if you don't have enough righteousness on this earth, You can tap into that treasury of merit. You can tap into that account, get some of it for yourself, get some of it for people, your friends or relatives in in purgatory. You can do that by buying indulgences. You can do that by paying money. When the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was the refrain. And Luther looked into that and he saw the corruption. You notice how it's exactly the same as what the Buddhist monks are doing now. This Navy SEAL who gave his life, he's now in the afterlife. They're saying, we need to help him out. Let's give ourselves as as monks. Let's achieve some merit in this karmic cycle and dedicate it to him. And lest you think that it's just the Catholic Church that has fallen into this error, turn on the TV and watch almost any preacher that you will find on there and listen to what they say, what will happen to you if you give money to 
the church. When you trust in works, when you're enslaved to the poison of performance, and then you find out that that performance is not present in your own life, you're left to say, well, maybe we can just skip it all and buy it. Bribes and payoffs may grease the palm of an earthly king or an earthly boss, but God is not impressed with green paper and gold coins. So then ask yourself, have you been feasting on the poison of performance? Look at the prayer of this Pharisee. It's filled with language about himself. I do this. I do that. Lord, thank you that I stay away from this and I'm not involved in such and such. Are your, are your prayers filled with the same kind of language? I, 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 me and my. Look at what else he does. He, he looks upon the tax collector. He's filled with contempt for him. Filled with contempt, contempt for this man that stands next to him. If you trust in works, you can do nothing but be filled with contempt for those around you. You can do nothing else but elevate yourself above them. Calvin says again, it is impossible that he who deceives himself with vain confidence should not lift himself up above his brethren. For how should that man not despise his equals who vaunts against God himself? So are you filled with contempt for your brothers or your sisters? Are you lacking the love of Christ? You know, some people, unfortunately, a reason to puff themselves up is the knowledge that they have, the knowledge of doctrine that they have, that they puff up and are filled with contempt for their brothers and their sisters. If we understand the gospel of grace, the doctrines of grace, is something I think to myself, that as Reformed people who understand the sovereignty of God in salvation, It ought to humble us each and every day and fill us with joy, unending joy for what God has done for us in plucking us out of sin even before the foundations of the earth were laid. Ask yourself, am I filled with the mindset of this Pharisee? Even just a little bit. Humility, a contrite heart, a repentant heart, that is the heart that finds the mercy and the grace of God. He The tax collector did not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He did not even lift up his eyes. That that, that book that I read, the quote, Jeremiah Burroughs at the beginning of the worship service, he talks about entering the sanctuary of God with your eyes down and just reminding yourself how holy God is, reminding yourself how much we do not match up. The poison of performance. Are you enslaved? Are you filled with the poison of performance? Has it seeped into every corner of your soul? so that you're trusting in yourself, so that you're filled with contempt for your brothers, your sisters. Finally, then, the person that grants pardon, the person who gives pardon. The tax collector illustrates for us what Jesus says over and over again, that if you cannot put forth an argument for your own righteousness, it's going to be easier for you to see that you need to be saved. But it's not as though a Pharisee can never understand the gospel. One Reformed pastor pointed this out. I thought it was such a good point, so I'll share it with you. Who discipled Luke? Luke, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Who discipled him? The Apostle Paul. What was the Apostle Paul? Paul was a Pharisee. Who gives the clearest defense of justification by faith in all of Scripture? It's Paul. See, Paul got it. He understood it. You remember that very famous passage in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, If anybody thinks he can boast before God, I assure you I could do it before you. I was uh, circumcised on the eighth day, born into the right family of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, zealous persecutor of the church. Before the law, I'm blameless. But then he says this, Philippians 3 verse 7. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. See, Paul got it. Paul got it. He got the gospel. He understood it. Have you understood the gospel of grace? Have you understood how it leaves us with the absolute imperative to distrust our works, to throw them to the side? This is one place where, where the doctrine piece is really essentially important. We understood covenant theology and how when God created the world and set Adam and Eve in the garden, he, he, he placed them under a covenant of works, Adam as a representative head, and he failed. He failed in his obedience. And because of that, all of, all of mankind stands condemned under that covenant of works. But even in the garden, God gave a promise and he showed his willingness to forgive and to give mercy. So we talk about a covenant of grace and covenant of grace is grace for us, but it's really the covenant of works that's kept for us. Somebody had to keep that covenant of works. That's Jesus Christ who came as the second Adam. Adam the second, the righteous son of God, righteous in every way in which we were unrighteous. It's because of his obedience and that all who trust in this Jesus Christ can be reconciled to God because as Jesus tells us this story today, this story about the Pharisee and the tax collector, he, he is merely probably weeks away from becoming not just the storyteller, he's going to become the sacrifice. Carry his own cross until he collapses from exhaustion so that he might be the one in whom God's word would be fulfilled. Remember when Abraham went up on the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. And remember God stopped the arm of Abraham said, don't touch the boy. I myself will provide. I will provide a way. God's word was fulfilled when he gave Jesus Christ. And when Jesus went up on the hill of Calvary, the arm didn't stop. And he gave his own son. He gave his own son at Calvary to fulfill his word. So that Jesus might be the righteous sacrifice for us. That our sins might be wiped away. And so that all who believe in Jesus Christ might have that righteousness. His righteousness. His obedience imputed to everyone who believes. My theology hero, if you will, is J. Gresham Machen, who died far too young and on his deathbed wired his friend. He said, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. Without what Jesus has done, without his obedience, there is no hope. When you whether a Pharisee or a tax collector, when you get the gospel, whether you're enslaved to, to legalism or libertinism, whether you think that it's because of your performance or, uh, or it's that God is, is in, in God you find cheap grace. He'll forgive you. He'll disregard sin. He'll just wipe it away. When you understand true grace, it's a complete paradigm shift and you understand how much you must distrust Work. So that's the payoff for us this morning. He who exalts himself will be, will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Have you humbled yourself under the mighty hand of God, as it says in 1 Peter? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time, he will exalt you. Or are you still 
filled with contempt for your brothers and your sisters because you are trusting in works. All we can do is throw ourselves upon the mercy and the grace of God. Forgiveness, forgiveness. That is what sets the Christian faith apart from all others. True forgiveness. Not cheap grace. Costly grace found in the blood and the life of Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him, it says, the words of the former Pharisee Paul, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those boys who were rescued from the cave. Such an amazing picture of grace. Trapped, unable to get out, unable to free themselves. Don't miss that picture of grace in that story. The one who was willing to give his life so that they might be saved. And don't miss the warning embedded in that story either. That when we're freed from the need of salvation, when we're freed from that need to be set free in that moment, that feeling of, I need to be saved, when that feeling wears away, we're so often tempted to trust once again in works. If we could only see, if we could all only see that there is a God who will forgive anyone who looks to the sacrifice of his son, what he did for us at Calvary. You see, we are like those 12 boys trapped in that cave, who brought shame upon our heavenly Father. But because of what Christ has done, we are accepted before that God, not because we deserve it, but because by his grace, he does not impute our sins to us. Let's pray. Father, we glory in our Redeemer, for he has ransomed us with his blood. We, we long for nothing else but for Christ. So we pray that the one who gave this parable, that he will have had spoken to us today the word of grace, Father. Your servant who stands here proclaiming your word is so insufficient for these things. But you as the great God who saves, who redeems, You are strong enough. You are mighty enough to save, to redeem, to sanctify. So by your Spirit, uh, might you bring this text to our hearts. Might we live in light of it and love Christ more and walk with him all of our days, understanding that we glory in nothing else but our great Redeemer. We pray in his name. Amen.